You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan. And joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vive. Squid, how are we keeping? We're bored, Michael. We're very, very <laughs> bored. <laughs> There's not a whole lot going on. Uh, up here and uh, it's getting cold so the walks mm-hmm. are getting a little bit tougher but still managing to do that on a regular basis and uh, but other than that again it's the same tv go to bed eat get up eat go for a walk watch tv <laughs> anyway it is what it is well, that seems to be the common theme now. People exchanging emails to 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 uh, you know promote a new show they've seen to share with share, share shows everybody's watching on Netflix or Prime or wherever they're finding these things. So we get emails from people and we're trading them back and forth. Remember, I told you to watch that uh, that one. I told you to watch with Kevin Bacon, City on the Hill. Yeah, I looked it up. Is it on Netflix? Uh, it was on Showtime. Oh, okay. So it'd be on Crave. Or yeah, no, great. Prime. So look for that one. There you go, folks. There's a new one for you. Kevin Bacon, he plays a, a, a corrupt FBI agent. He's fantastic. Oh. Well, speaking of fantastic squid, our guest today really doesn't get any bigger in the world of hockey, Phil Esposito. Yeah, figuratively and uh, his size as well. I mean, the guy's a big man. Uh, he was one of those guys that loved to camp out in the slot and Boy, oh boy, scored over 700 goals in the National Hockey League. Uh, I mean, it was, he was a, a big, big presence for the Bruins when they won those two Stanley Cups and, and for many years. And, of course, the biggest of all was the 72 Canada-Russia series. Absolutely. Where he kind of made that big uh, uh, thing on TV, and then they went on and won the series. Yeah, and we're going to get into that with him uh, because just his leadership alone. I mean, Henderson scored a goal, as I'll say, as I mentioned to him, but without his leadership, they don't win. And, you know, he's one of those guys who's helped. Of course, we're talking about Phil Esposito, by the way. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and, uh, um, you know, he you know he helped Deb and I with, uh, you were at an event with us uh, when we had him one night at our place, and he's done did a couple events. And I one that stuck with me is during the 2016 World Cup, we had an event with a number of guys. So we had, I had a panel I was moderating with eight players on it. And when we got into the 72 Summit Series, all the players in the panel started turning to Phil and asking him questions themselves, because they're all kind of, we were all basically the same age, but he was older, so we were all as fans asking questions of him and here are all these NHL guys, you know, uh, you know, Dennis Maruk and uh, uh, Bobby Carpenter and Ronnie Duguay and all the, and Kuzelinski and all these guys asking him questions. And it was just a sight to behold and just shows you the impact that that really had on us as Canadians and even Americans. Well, there's no question. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I, I would love to be able to do sit down with some of those guys and, talk about what it was like, I mean, going to Russia uh, back in in, in, that, in those days when, you know, they, it was still uh, a communist country and everything else and, yeah. and just what it, what it was like. And uh, yeah, it, it would be, it would be great to, to get the insights into that whole series. 
Well, he's gonna. He's got. He does have a few stories he's gonna be able to tell us, and um, we'll we'll get into that with him in just a few minutes. But we would be remiss, obviously, if we didn't uh, talk about our guys. Seven, two, and one after ten. Um, they play Vancouver tomorrow. We're recording this a day before their next game, obviously at home. Seven of eight points on the road is usually a pretty good thing. Yeah, they've been playing pretty good. Uh, you know, they've had a, you know, a couple of games where they've had spots in those games where things didn't go probably as they would like. But the, the amazing thing is, what about those Canadians? I mean, they're they're unbelievable. I, I, I didn't know if they really would be are. that that good this year or not. But uh, I guess the additions of Foley and uh, Anderson, I think the guy is it Anderson. Yeah, uh, has made a big impact on that hockey club, you know. And they had they had some good young players, Suzuki and Kakanyemi, and and guys like that already. But bringing those older good players in, like well, the Foley's not that old, but the Foley and uh, Perry, uh, you know, you got Weber on defense who played his one thousandth game uh, the last time they yeah. played. I think last night. Right. They got a pretty strong club. Well, and it just goes to show you too with them. And I mean, we don't like to pump their tires too much, of course, because they are the Montreal Canadiens. But on, on yeah. top of that management, you have to give them credit. Mark Bergeron, they stuck with them. They let them build his team. They let the team evolve. They let the team grow. And through, they're maturing now and you can see the results. The results are starting to show up in the win column. Absolutely. And uh, well, of course, they got maybe the best goalie in the league or uh, when he's at his best, obviously, in price. And then uh, Allen has come in and, and done a very good job as a backup. He's, I think he's two or three and old. Um, you know, I mean, so, so it's good for them. But, uh, you know, a couple of things, you know, I, I'm, I'm not so sure on some of those guys they brought in, uh, the Maple Leafs, that is. Uh, I think maybe they could use a little bit of time in the American Hockey League. Uh, Letting in uh, a couple Arbor of guys. I saw they, I saw they sent uh, the other Anderson kid down to the Marlins. Yeah. And so anyway, there. But you know that that's part of the whole problem going the way things have been going with the pandemic is you really can't get. Uh, everything in order and those guys would already be playing in, you know, in the American Hockey League and gaining experience over here and then get a better chance of, of coming up to the big club and, and supplying uh, what, what they can do to the big club. So anyway, it is what it is. And uh, I think at least from what I see, Toronto and Montreal have done a heck of a job. Well, the thing about it too is, I mean, you're bang on. I, I agree with you 100. But the thing is, with a 56 game schedule, no, never mind every loss is almost devastating. Giving up that point in overtime is is equally as as painful. There's no room for on the job training. So kids like Latinen and okay, he's not a kid at 26. Well, to you and I, he's a kid. But Barbanov, you, you just don't have. Normally, they would let them play and let them work it out over 10, 15 games. But you just don't have time to do that. So it's it's, you know, it's almost like foot to the metal and it's the, the best players have to play every game and there's going to be a lot of movement amongst the lineup. Well, look at uh, Simmons is moving up the lineup into the top six because he's playing yeah. well. He earned it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, under the circumstances, I mean, 
you have to look at things a little bit differently than you would in a normal season. And, That's right. You know, and unfortunately, uh, you, like you say, you don't have that much time. There's only 56 games uh, in a short period of time. Uh, every single point counts, you know, very, very, uh, they're all big. Every point is big. And, and you don't have time to teach people how to, you know, adapt to, from Europe to the North American style of hockey. You just don't have that, that luxury uh, when you're going through a, a thing like this. We don't. And just to give you a notice, I mean, we're going to be, obviously we're pleased with the way the team's playing and it looks like they're, they're, they're picking things up and hopefully they can keep the momentum going, but it looks like there's some head on collisions coming with Montreal in the next, in the near future. But just to give you an idea, Squid, where we are in the world we live in today, 10 games into the season, this day in 1993, Mike Gardner scored four goals and had an assist, including a hat trick in the first period to lead the Wales conference over the Campbells in the All-Star game. Pierre Turgeon <laughs> had five points in that game also. So it goes to show you where we really should be in normal times, and we're 10 games into the season. Uh, well, uh, not to mention the Wales and the Campbell Conference, two conferences. Well, I love that, yes, that exactly. no longer exist. And uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know what? It's funny because I remember I played in three of those games and wore that uh, sweater and it was the old orange and black kind of colors, and uh, it was Those a lot great. of fun. It was great back then. It was, but our our all star games were always on a Tuesday night, and sometimes you played Sunday, sometimes you played Wednesday. So you didn't get a like it wasn't an all star break. It was basically like I, I recall. I think I told the story one time. We played out west, uh, Edmonton or Calgary. Uh, on a Saturday or a Sunday, then I took the red eye to Toronto. There were six of us, Bobby Mantle, myself from Toronto, Duguay, Barry Beck, I uh, can't remember who else. And they had a Learjet waiting for us in Toronto, put us all on the Learjet, flew us to Washington. And that was my first All-Star game, actually. And, uh, or no, my might have been my second. I can't, can't remember now. No, it was my first. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, and then, and then I had to play Wednesday back in Toronto. You know, so, I mean, you, you, it wasn't really an all-star break. It was a dinner on Monday night, practice Tuesday, get the team picture taken, play Tuesday night. And then you, I had to fly back to Toronto on uh, Wednesday morning and play that night at home. So it's not well, like it is like where they get like four, five, six days off. Well, the CBA wasn't wasn't as powerful as it is today, so that's well, not going to happen anymore. Yeah, the CBA, but that was all because of one individual. Why it wasn't as strong as it is today, and we all know yes, who exactly. That is. And we'll save that for another show. But <laughs> now, speaking of which, I you know this is a perfect lead into this next piece of information that you before we get the fill. On this same day in 1959, well, imagine this happening today, Squid. Detroit coach said Abel fined 14 Detroit Red Wing regulars $100 each for losing 5 nothing to the Rangers the previous night in Detroit at home. And he said among those fined for indifferent play was Gordie Howe. Imagine them trying to get away with that today. Like, imagine Sullen Keith walking in and finding those, say today, $500. And Tate Austin, he didn't play very well. You owe me 500 bucks. And Johnny T, 500 
No, it wouldn't happen today. That's for that's for sure. But I am I am impressed with how the top guys have been playing on the Leafs. I mean, they're they've really come around. You can see a big difference. Uh, Matthews, the way he's been playing in his own zone, the way he's playing a little bit more physical. Uh, he, he's on the puck a lot quicker and, and harder than he was before. I, I'm enjoying the uh, the yeah. way they're playing. I really am. Yeah, I mean, it, you, you do notice, and he seems to be playing with even more confidence. Like he mm-hmm. hangs it up, puck even for him, even he hangs on to a little bit longer and making that extra play. I mean, you can just see that confidence building in him. So it's just uh, too bad we only get to, get to watch him for 56 games during a regular season, but hopefully there's a bit of an extended play. So speaking of extended play, I think they've probably listened to you and I long enough. Let's turn it over and listen to see what uh, Phil has to say. Well, Squid, our guest today has a resume. Ernest Hemingway would be challenged to condense with his accomplishments. Let's see. Hall of Famer, multiple Art Ross, Hart, Stanley Cup, Lester Pearson, award winner. Has a statue in front of the Emily Arena for his contribution to bringing hockey to Tampa Bay area. Never mind win one for the Gipper. His passionate speech during the Summit Series in 72 from Vancouver across the nation is regarded as well, not only the greatest in hockey, but maybe all of sports. And if you haven't figured it out by now, our guest today is Phil Esposito. And by the way, before I bring Phil on, I just want to say, Phil, by the way, is the first to go by first name only, not that left-handed golfer. How are we doing today, Phil? <laughs> I'm doing well. I should have learned how to play left-handed golf. I should have. But in those days, you couldn't get a free set of clubs left-handed. <laughs> Well, I play left-handed, and I probably should learn to play right-handed, okay? So that's a pretty good stick himself, playing from the right side. So um, so how are you keeping busy during – you're still on the radio, and uh, tell us a little about how that's all going. Well, I've been doing the radio, home radio only, and I'm going to do a couple of away games because you can't go away. And uh, so, you know, you just do it uh, from the television monitors. And um, I'm going to do a couple of those this year. I didn't want to travel anymore. Uh, it was just getting to be too much. And so I decided that uh, if they wanted me to stay on, I'd stay on doing the home radio. And they're fine with that. And I've been doing it ever since, I think, 2000, 2001 or something. It was before or just after 9-11. So... I remember yeah, that. So yep, so it's 2001. So, well, yep. so now how do you find it um, uh, as an announcer? I guess you're not at the games, but just sensing it without that crowd and energy to feed off of, is it look as tough as it is to stay excited during the game? Well, I, I do the home games live. We do go yeah, into okay. our broadcast booth like today. I'll do it live. And, um, and, and here's... It is different. I got to tell you, I didn't mind doing the games last year in the bubble and the playoffs because they, it was more exciting and everything else, but without fans and you're sitting there live watching them play in the arena and there's no fans is strange, but I mean, I've been around the NHL for 58 years now. So uh, it, it this is strange, very strange, but everybody seems to be doing well with it, and whatever way we can have hockey is fine with me. We couldn't agree more. 
Yeah, I'd have to agree with there for sure. Um, let's go back to, um, let's see how your memory is here, Phil. We're going to go back. As a kid growing up in the Sioux, you yeah. were convinced, you were always convinced. Now you say that, that, I'm being positive here, by the way, Phil. Uh, you, could, you were convinced that you could make it in hockey, but maybe your dad didn't feel the same way. But you just seemed to always been very confident, uh, you know, a good leader, what, 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 where did that sort of come from and how did it develop when you as a kid? I, I really don't know. I mean, I wasn't a guy that uh, enjoyed school. I must admit that. My brother, on the other hand, uh, went the college route and good for him. But it just wasn't my bailiwick and I, I just wanted to play hockey. Uh, I remember as a 11-year-old, maybe 10 or 11 years old, we used to have these uh, guidance counselors in public school in Sault Ste. Marie, and her name was Mrs. Cunningham. I'll never forget it. And she was asking all the kids in the class what they wanted to do when they grew up. You know, people would say doctor, lawyer, nurse, whatever. And I would say hockey player. And she'd say, Phil, you're not answering the question. And I'd look at her and I'd say hockey player. So she sent me home with a note to my father telling me that I was disruptive in class. And I thought, oh boy, my dad's going to whoop me here. There's no doubt about it. And when I showed him the note, he said to me, I'm coming with you to school tomorrow. And I just looked at him and he didn't do anything and he didn't say anything more. And when we went to class, or went to school and went mate with Mrs. Cunningham. She he said, "What's the problem?" And she said, "He refuses to answer a question on what he wants to do when he grows up and what he wants to do when he gets older." And is that right, Dad? Or is that right, Phil? My dad said to me, and I said, "No, I, I told her I wanted to be a hockey player." She said, "See what I mean?" He turned to her. And he says, so what's wrong with that? If that's what he wants to do. My father went from being a, a foot to two feet tall to six feet tall. You understand? And yeah. I was never, I never dissipated him again. And I was so proud of him for doing that to me. I didn't realize how much I was proud of him until later in life, obviously. And um, from that moment on, it was concentration and playing hockey. If it was street hockey in the summertime, I organized it and get teams together and we would play on the street. Hell, I remember skating on the street in the wintertime because the ice, you know, the streets got full of ice. And we would steal. <laughs> we stole those horses, you know, those blocks to block off the road and we would put one in the one end, one in the other. So they wouldn't sand the road. <laughs> it was crazy, but um, we did all of that stuff just to play. And of course, when the open air rinks, when we could make a rink. And when I was a youngster, I remember looking out the window and my dad out in three o'clock in the morning in the backyard, flooding, flooding the snow and the ice and, making ice for Tony and I to skate and, and what have you. So 
it goes back a long, long way. And every Christmas, that's all we would get with hockey equipment, uh, whether a new pair of gloves or a new pair of skates or a couple of sticks. And um, that was beautiful to me. But I got cut the first time I went to try out for a, a Bantam team, I guess it was back then, 12, 13-year-old, I got cut. And uh, it was the sponsored team. Now, the team that was sponsored was a team called Algoma Contractors. And my uncle was in charge of the Algoma Contractors. My dad was a foreman there. And when we... Um, when when I got cut, I came home and I remember I was crying like crazy. Absolutely, <laughs> I was. I am not ashamed to admit it. And I went and played for the local. They had a every district had their team. Like we were zone seven, and there was a zone eight, and then there was a zone nine, and and we would play on the open air rinks, which was. Central Park at the time, and now it's Esposito Park. And um, we would play there. And in the finals, we lost out to the Algoma contractors, and they were allowed to pick um, three or four players up, and they picked both Tony and I up to go, and we won the All-Canadian Juvenile Championship. That's what it was, Juvenile. And from that moment on, you know, it seemed I was on my way. But I didn't make junior hockey until I was almost 19. And when people think of that, and I think about that with guys making it 16 and 15 and what have you, and, you know, um, I was almost 19 years old. And I was driving truck and bulldozers and Euclid's and what have you in the steel plant. And I was been working there until since I was 17, I figured I was going to be there the rest of my life, but I got invited to go to training camp in St. Catharines. Rudy Pillis owned the team. The Blackhawks had won the Stanley cup. And I was invited to go down to, to training camp and I'll never forget. I'm skating around and Rudy Pillis goes, you fatso, come here. <laughs> and I waddled over to him. He says, how much you weigh? I said, 230. He says, that's too big. You're way too fat. And I looked at him and he says, you want to play? You want to play for the St. Catharines team? It was the teepees then. Yep. And I said, yeah. He said, I'll give you 60 bucks a week. If you go home, and this was in August because it was like rookie camp. You get back here October 1st at 200 pounds, and I'll give you 60 bucks. I went home, and my mom, I never ate pasta and bread and pizzas. I was on the round steak diet and anything else. And I show up at the big training camp in the juniors, and I weigh in. I weighed 201 pounds. And Rudy said, you didn't make it. I looked at him. I said, come on. I, I, I did whatever you asked of me, and I, I did it. And he looked at me, and he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. Instead of 60 bucks, I'll give you a 20 or 57.50. I'm taking $2.50. 
for the pound. <laughs> you imagine that. And then I didn't play. I didn't play for the first five or six games. And I was just sitting there and I didn't want to lose my seniority. And I called my dad and told him I was going to come home. And he says, why? I says, I'm not playing. And I don't want you know, the seniority and all that. So um, there was going to be an exhibition game played at uh, Port Colburn. Is, yeah, outside of, by, by St. Catharines. And um, against an intermediate team. And Ray Cullen, who is the star of the team, wasn't going to play because he was hurt. And they said, Kenny Campbell, who coached the team, he says, listen, come and play this game. And then you can, if you want to go home, you can go home. But I'll let you play. I said, only if I can play center. And he says, okay, you can, because Rukulli played center. And we ended up winning that game. I think it was 6-4, and I got uh, three goals and two assists. And and a year and a half later, I was in the NHL. Well, let's let's just go through. I mean, you lit it up in St. Catharines. You had a pr- pretty good time in St. Catharines. Uh, you were, you know, played well in Sarnia before that. You go to, you get make it to Chicago. But talk about getting called up that first time and then the line mates that you had. And then all of a sudden, some of the successes started coming with, those, with the Hawks. Well, I was in St. Louis in the old Central League. And yeah. I had 80 points in 40 games. And it was January 16th. Murray Hall. Remember Murray Hall, Rick? Yeah, I sure do. Murray got yeah. sent down Squid to St. Louis. Squid's younger, Squid younger than us. He won't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Murray Hall got sent down to St. Louis, and I got called up. And ironically, he wore number seven, and that's what I love to wear. And I got called up, and I didn't play. I sat on the bench like all rookies did, but they made sure I got one shift every game. And so I could get over 25 games. That way I wouldn't be eligible for the rookie of the year, the following year, if it happened. Right. And, um, in fact, Roger Crozier won the rookie of the year, the following year. And I was with Roger in St. Louis and, um, I ended up playing on a line with Bobby Hull and Chico Mackey. Billy Haywood with guy, Eric Nestorenko. Huh? You remember those guys? <laughs> yeah, we heard of Hull before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Chico. Chico was a kid from Sault Ste. Marie also. Yeah. And um, we just clicked. And I got to tell you, Bobby Hull probably taught me more about life and about hockey than anybody else ever. He was just great with me. Um, I got in trouble with Billy Ray a couple of times, and Bobby bailed me out. He, he and I missed a plane one time coming from Boston, and we had to pay our own way back, and I didn't have the money, and Bobby paid for the ticket. And um, when we got back, and Bobby was my roommate, and Billy Ray was just livid with us, but he couldn't do much because Bobby was with me. <laughs> and I made sure I stuck close to Bob. <laughs> now, Phil, come to, like, after a couple of years, you guys are clicking very well. Now, you've never been shy about voicing your opinion. So you were, you know, your team was just on the verge, but couldn't get over the, the hump. And all of a sudden, that fateful day all of a sudden came where players 
hear those words they don't want to hear. And we've used this one before with guys, those three words, and it doesn't mean I'll have another one. It means you've been traded and you're off to Boston. Well, let me tell you one, one funny story, though. We were in Toronto and we were losing, I think it was 5-2 or 6-2. And I hadn't yeah. even got a shift. And they sent Makita and Billy Hay, who were the other two centermen, to the sh- to get dressed and make sure they caught the train going back to um, Chicago. And Billy yeah. said, Esposito, you go out there. It was like two minutes left in the game. And I turned <laughs> to him and I says, would you like me to win it or tie it? He said, sit down, smartass. And I said, no problem. Well, that was the beginning of my problems with Billy Ray. And yeah. the following year, I ended up scoring 20 goals. Um, I think I had 23. I can't remember right now, but 21. it was over 20. Because the yeah, three 21. years, I, yeah, 21, okay. And um, I scored 20 goals each of the years there. And then... I got, I get the notice I got traded. I knew I was going to get traded because when I went in to get my expense check, and Rick, you you could relate to this maybe, I went in and the secretary said, listen, Mr. Ivan does not want to see you. Here's your check and pack all your belongings. You probably won't be back here. And I I said, oh, gee, okay. And then <laughs> I got, I was told, Bobby Hill called me to tell me I was traded. Nobody else. Bobby. And I said, are you serious? He said, no, you got traded to Boston. Well, I was in shock. And Milt Schmidt calls me, who is the manager, offers me $8,000. I was making seven with the Blackhawks, but we went to the finals that year and lost to uh, Toronto. And then they went on uh, to win the Stanley Cup. We lost to Sachuk and Bauer, and those two guys were unbelievable. And uh, I, I told him I wanted $10,000 plus all these bonuses, and he says, we can't give it to you. I said, fine. And I was going to quit and stay working at the steel plant. I had just gotten married like an idiot. And I, uh, I thought, okay, I'm going to work in the Sioux the rest of my life, and fool around, play hockey, but work in the plant. And I was at my brother's graduation when Milt called my mother. My mother said, you've got to call him right away. Uh, We were playing softball, and at second base was a keg of beer. So if you got to second base, you had a shot of beer. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) after the the base softball game, I, I went and called him. And he said, look, okay, we'll give you the $10,000. He said, but I want you at 195 pounds. I said, listen, it's not about the money right now. I said, if I play bad, let's talk about my weight, but let me play at what I feel good at. And he says, well, okay, I agree to that. I said, and here's wealth. I want bonuses. I want bonuses of 20 goals, 25, 30, 35, for up to 50. I did up to 50. And um, he says, well, fine. Well, the bonuses would be more. And if the Bruins made the playoffs, 
because they hadn't made the playoffs in years. I had a bonus for that too. They weren't big, but five thousand, three thousand, stuff like that, right? And when I when I told him all this, he says, "You want for fifty goals?" I said, "Yeah." Well, if the, I think if I remember correctly, I ended up with forty nine that year. And uh, I, okay. I just, I, I think it was just a matter of getting the opportunity. And being a 19-year-old when I made junior, that was scary because not very often you made junior hockey at 19. Maybe nowadays they do it. I don't know. And for me, the key was Harry Sinden told me the first day of training camp, I'm going to make you our shooter. I said, what does that mean? He says, I want you to play this slot area. And he circled the slot from the dot to the top of the face-off circle, hash marks on the other side. And Bobby had told me years ago that was like a funnel, Phil. If if you had, if you got the puck at the top of that face-off circle, don't even think about passing. Shoot it. And that's what he said to me, shoot it. And I says, that's fine with me. So when I was in Boston, that's what I did. And... Harry was smart enough to get me two players to play that could work to get the puck out. First, my first year was Ronnie Murphy and Kenny Hodge. And then Tommy Williams, the only American back then, played left wing with Hodge and I. And then Wayne Cashman was brought up, and that's when we talk, took off. Well, Squid, you can relate to well, all that as a 19-year-old coming in and playing pro. Yeah, and I... Uh... <clears throat> I, I hope you had those bonuses for the next five years after that because you went on a tear, Phil, and I still remember you parking yourself in that slot and nobody could move you out of there. And, and I mean, watching you just... Well, you know what it was, Ricky? From... You did it, too. What you did, what you do, and I, I don't understand the guys nowadays being right on top of the goalie. I don't understand it. I'll never understand it. They can scream from where a little bit further out. Mm-hmm. Where the hell do the rebounds go? They don't drop right down front, usually. I mean, if yeah. you move out a little wee bit, you've got a better opportunity to score. And so that's where I stayed. Hash marks in, hash marks in. And um, yeah. that was my whole theory on how to play. Well, it worked out pretty good, I would say. And then, of course, you <laughs> yeah. had that big year where you, you held that record of 76 goals until some scrawny little kid named Gretzky came along. <laughs> <laughs> and, By the way, the other day, you know, he turned 60, uh, Wayne. And I right. text him and I says, congratulations on getting into the old folks' home. And by the way, <laughs> this is one thing you can't catch me on. <laughs> now Phil, I want to ask you you're Boston everything seemed to fall into place for you guys you had a guy wearing number four I think that was an okay player um, there was a couple of things I want to ask you well, you are very confident at Hockey Cups and you guys are very very tight you made a comment after you guys won the Stanley Cup and I don't know if you remember ever saying this but with your memory I'm sure you do you said three years ago I said we would win this Stanley Cup you know yep. why because we have a team that stays together. Now, well, what was it about the team that bonded so well together? 
Well, here's what it was. We lost, we made the playoffs that first year and lost to Montreal. And I was at the water fountain in uh, the airport, what is it, Maribel in Montreal. And Harry was getting a drink of water in the fountain. And I was waiting because I was going to have a drink of water too. And I said to Harry, Harry, within three years, we're going to win the Stanley Cup. And he says, I hope so, Phil. The thing was that Bobby Orr was so dominant. And I watched this guy. I watched this guy at training camp. I watched him in practices. I watched him in games. And I would sort of get myself in a position because sooner or later, he'd get me the puck or somebody would get me the puck. And I would go to positions and areas where they could get it to me. And my whole thing in my life was don't miss the net, no matter what. That's why I think that's one record of mine that will never be broken. 550 shots on net that year, I scored 76. Because I just shot. I remember one game against the Rangers, I had 16 shots. Got a hat trick. But I had I should have had four or five, but I had sixteen shots. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, funny. Some that guys don't me, get that in a year. That brings me to a good story. My first year in the NHL when I was in Vancouver, of course, my roommate in Birmingham at the WHA the year before was Pat Riggin, a goalie who was playing for Atlanta. So we play Atlanta the one game. I, I had fourteen shots on goal. And came wow. away with zero goals. Zero Are you goals. Kidding? So how the hell did you do that, Rick? <laughs> <laughs> well, Pat was hot that night, and I didn't hear the end of that for until the next time we played them, and I scored three on him, and then he didn't say a word after that. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, I mean, uh that's the more shots you get on that, the more chance you get to score. Simple. Well, what's that old line Gretzky uses? You, 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 you miss every shot, you never take at the net. Okay so, right. if you don't shoot, okay, so if you don't shoot, they're not going in. Now, Phil, that club of yours was a cast of characters. I mean, there could be a movie done on that team. Oh, oh yeah. Crazy, <laughs> crazy guys. Derek was something else. I asked Derek one time. I asked Sanderson one time. I said, Derek, what's with all this stuff you're talking about and he said look Bobby Orr gets all the publicity because he's the best player you get all the publicity because you're a scorer me I gotta find a way to get publicity <laughs> and well, I read did. a story on him I read a story on him one time in a hockey magazine uh, going hockey illustrated way back in the time and he was um had a cigarette in one hand, a drink in the other hand, doing the interview with the long hair. And he was telling the guy he was dressing Bobby Orr and helping him get girls. And he said, he said, well, what about, he said, well, we're in Minnesota right now. The girls here don't have to get too dressed up too much for them. So I, he's pretty casual today. <laughs> and he got away with this. I, this is the type Derek, of stuff that. I sat beside him for the whole time I was in Boston until, you know, and then he went to the WHA there. And honest to God, in his, when he was really getting bad, you could smell the booze on him. And I said, Derek, you all right? Turk, you all right? He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, Jesus Christ, man, you stink. I mean, you stink of booze. And he says, yeah, I had a tough night. He said, I had a tough night. But he went out there, and I remember he 
got into a fight with Orland Curtinback, who was one tough son of a bitch. And, and Derek held his own. And I couldn't believe it. In between periods, I said to him, what made you take on that big goof? And he said, <laughs> Phil, this guy was giving me a little checks here, a spear here. So I had to do something. And I thought, he's not afraid of anything or anybody. And he's going to do what he has to do to become famous. And that's what he did. Well, you know, now you guys, as, as some of the other bonding stuff you had, maybe the, the, there's a famous story of you being kidnapped from the hospital for a team end party. Yeah. The boys really needed. Now, why don't you tell us that one for some of the listeners? 19, 1973, we played a two out of three series for the first round against the Rangers. And in the first game, I cut across the blue line and I see Ronnie Harris coming. But I couldn't go to my right because Jim Nielsen was there. I couldn't go to my left because there's where he was coming. If I stopped, there was guys coming back checking on me. Um, it was Peter Stumkowski. So I tried to cut across, and Ronnie Harris used to go really low. And he got me, got me in the knee. So I, they carried me off, and I went into the, into the medical room and shut the door. And I thought, if I could do a deep knee bend, I'll be fine. Well, I went down, and I never got up. And I got operated on, and we lost out. It was April the 6th when I had the operation, and April the 8th, uh, I think we lost out. And Bobby comes in about 11 o'clock in the morning, and he said, Wapo, we're going to take you to the party tonight. And I said, what? And my wife was there. And she said, what are they talking, what's he talking about? I said, oh, don't worry about it. I said, it's a wind-up party. So, you know, they've probably been already going at it. And I said, don't worry about it. Well, 7 o'clock that night, 7.30, the door slams open, and there's Bobby dressed in a hospital gown with a mask and, a, and one of the hats they wear, along with Freddie O'Donnell, um, Kenny Hodge, a guy named Patty Constantine used to sit in the penalty box at Boston Garden, a big, big guy. Um, who else? Dallas Smith. And there was one other guy, and I really can't remember right now. And Bobby comes in, and I didn't know this till later. He had gotten a private detective to go to the nurse's desk at the Phillips house in Mass General and say, where's the guy that got shot? And the nurse was panicked. She didn't know. And right, I was diagonally across from the elevator, bribed the elevator guy, wheeled me at the bed with my leg in traction and a cast from my groin to my tippy toes, and wheeled me into the elevator. We went down to the basement of Mass General. We get to the door, and it's those electric doors, you know, with with uh, the bar in between where you step and it opens up while well, I couldn't get the bed through. So Dallas Smith, Haji and uh, Patty Constein and one other guy, they literally tore that bar out of the cement to get the door open and got me. And we were going down the street and Bobby, my wife is running beside me because it's not all I had on was a hospital Johnny and they're putting blankets on me and she, and they put my, head, you know, the blanket over my head like I was dead. 
And they got me to the place called the Branding Iron, which Bobby owned, and there were 24 steps that you had to walk up to get to the bar. And they carried that stinking bed because they broke the wheel. And they carried me up there, put me in the middle of the bar with bricks underneath that one part where the wheel was broken and put a stinky provolone cheese between my legs and gave me a beer in one hand and a beer in the other and said, let's party. And I'm telling you, it went on for about half an hour, 35 minutes. And I see scrolling across the bottom of the television says Phil Esposito kidnapped from Mass General. So I tell Bobby and he goes, holy crap, I better call Dr. Rowe. Calls Dr. Rowe and Rowe said, listen, I'll send a, uh, an ambulance to get him. Do not, do not try to carry him back because if he falls, he'll never walk again. Well, I didn't know that he told him that. And Bobby says, nope, we took him here. We're taking him back. And they carried me back the whole way, got me into the room, and I'll never forget it because the next day I had to pay $3,800 for the new bed they broke, the door they broke. Uh, and I, Bobby calls me and says, how you doing? I said, Bob, cost me $3,800 for this stuff. He said, did you pay it? I said, I had to. He says, great party, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so now you guys looked after each other, Phil, a lot. Old-time um, old yeah. hockey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is old-time. Well, here's another story I'd like you to sort of recount. It's the time, and I think this happened on more than one occasion, where drinking beer was part of the, d the day back then. And Wayne yes, Cashman sir. was your winger. And he, one time you got a call from the police station. I love this story that you told yes. me one time. And maybe you want to recount that one for the listeners who haven't heard. This is a classic. I was living in Linfield, Mass. Most of us were. And I get a call from a guy named Kenny Burnin, who was the little sheriff of Linfield. And it was 3 o'clock in the morning. He said, Phil, he says, we got cash here. I said, where? He said, we got him in a cell here. He said, we can't let him drive. We can't let him go. You got to come and get him. I says, okay. My wife says, where are you going? I says, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll call you or I'll be back shortly. I drive up to the, the, the jail, which wasn't far from where I lived, and sitting in the, in the cell was Wayne and this guy, Kenny Burnham, the sheriff, and the, and the deputy sheriff, and they're eating Chinese food. <laughs> and I says, what the heck's going on? And Kenny said he had one phone call, so he ordered forty dollars worth of Chinese food. <laughs> and we sat there and ate Chinese food, and then they let him out, and I took him home. I mean, imagine trying to do that in today's day. Yeah, oh, that, yeah, that would be amazing. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I have a few of those things myself, like the things. That Absolutely, you do because you played back then too. Yeah, it was, it was so much more mean, fun. I can only imagine. But we didn't make any money, Rick. Ever, well, not as much as they do today, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, that's for sure. <laughs> so, Phil, we get to that point. Things are rolling normally well, and I'll set this one up for you as such that, you know, as we talked about before, that all of a sudden that one fateful day, you get the call, you guys are on the road, and you're going to get moved again. But 
I just was prefaced by saying preface this by saying that you had turned down a 10-year contract with the WHA team, the Blazers, yes. with a million dollar guarantee to a million dollar bonus to join yes. these guys to sign for less with the Bruins. Yes. And then all of a sudden, one morning in Vancouver, you get a phone call, and maybe you want to tell that story. I think this is a classic. Well, concept. first off, preface it by it was my contract. I had what they called the irrevocable trust. And um, it was a, I got a, a pretty good, it was a good contract. It was $400,000. And um, I took 150 home, and the rest went into uh, an irrevocable trust that I could not touch or do anything until I was 42 years old. And prime rate was 18%. Never to go below the prime rate of 18%. It went up to 20% at that time, and it went down, but it never got below 18. And when they read my contract, uh, Jerry Jacobs, he didn't like it. So they wanted me to change my contract. And I remember Harry calling me, because we were in Buffalo when he called me, and he said, Phil, we got to change your contract because they couldn't deduct anything until I started taking it at 42. Now, my brother had the same thing with the Blackhawks. In fact, he's still getting paid by them with that. And um, I thought, I'm not going to change a contract. I signed it. If uh, That's it. We agreed. Case closed. Never thinking that they could trade him. And if I'm not mistaken, we had played 12 games then, and I had something around 20 points in those 12 games. And we were going to Vancouver, but we had three or four days before we had to play. And so naturally, we all went out and had a good time and what have you. And the next morning, I was hung over, and it was the first time on a road trip I never roomed with Cash, Wayne Cashman. I roomed with Hank Nowak. Remember him, Rick? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I know the name. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he played, he was with Detroit at one time and then was with the Bruins here. And that's when I, uh, I got the call from Don Cherry says, listen, I got to talk to you. I got to, you got to come down here. Now it was, I think seven o'clock in the morning. Cause I, and I knew what was going on. Cause my wife had just called me earlier to tell me there was a report that I gotten traded to New York. And I said to grapes, I said, listen, you want to talk to me, you come and see me. The knock on the door, I open up, and there's Don Cherry with the ugliest pajamas I've ever seen. Goes maybe with a lot of those suits he used to wear. And Bobby Orr. And Bobby had a pair of slacks on and a T-shirt and no socks and shoes. And he walked right over to the mirror. And I sat at the edge of the bed with my underwear on. And and I'm sitting there, and Don said, Phil, i got to tell you something. I said, listen. If you tell me I get traded to the New York Rangers, I'm going to jump out that window. And he turned to Bobby and said, Bobby, open the window. And that's how <laughs> I got told. <laughs> I mean, you can laugh about it now, but yeah. God, that was I mean, the hardest the thing. That was the hardest thing to go there and say bye to all those guys. And I got on an airplane and went to o Oakland. Um, and I remember this very vividly. I had two or three vodkas on that plane ride. 
and went there and went right to the rink because I didn't get there till like 5.30 or something. And they, the New York Rangers didn't have an extra jersey, not one. I couldn't believe it because the Bruins, we always packed half a dozen extra jerseys because some of them would get stolen. And I, I couldn't believe it. So they gave me Larry Satcherick's jersey. And Larry didn't play that night. And I wore number five, my first game against Oakland. We lost 7-4 that game. I had two goals, two assists. And Gary Sabrin, I remember, got three or four that night. And I couldn't believe it. And I was in the shower. And Peter Stamkowski and Waller Kachuk said, What's, what are you so upset about? I said, we just lost to the best, the worst team in hockey. I, I'm not used to this. And he said, well, don't worry about it. We got another game tomorrow night. Who cares? I couldn't believe it. But I realized that I had to get close to the younger guys, the Ronnie Greshners, the, the um, Dave Maloney's. Uh, I had to get close to the young guys and turn them, turn them into caring, really caring. I realized then that's why the New York Rangers could never beat the Boston Bruins. They just didn't have that fire that the Bruins had. And that's why we could, the Bruins could never beat the Canadians. You get in the finals of the Canadians. It was done back then. And so I was appalled And the, the second game in LA. I twisted my ankle and I guess I broke it. And so I had to miss four to six weeks. And I made one huge mistake. I wore the Lang skates. Remember those? Sure I wore the Lang skates and I really taped it up. The trainer, Frankie Pace, he couldn't even tape an ankle. He couldn't take a wrist. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and Stepkowski was doing it mostly. Uh, unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. But in Boston, we had Johnny Forrestal and Danny Canny. And they were very good at it. And so I didn't play, so I tried to play. And the fans started booing me. I tried. But my ankle was not ready to be out there. But I just felt so bad that, you know, I just got traded. And in my second game, and I never missed games with the Bruins. I mean, I got hurt in 73, but we lost out. But I was back playing. Actually, September 28th, which is the day also was the last game of Team Canada when we won September 28th. And we played against the Blackhawks, an exhibition game, and I got two that night. And I was back. Well, did the Rangers experience got better as the years went on? The Rangers improved, so you had some impact on the club, obviously, but... What what was missing from them? Now you the character and the attitude was first and foremost right off the bat. You it stood out obviously. You just touched on, but what was missing from that hockey club to go to the next level when you were progressively getting better? Camaraderie. And the truth is, we were practicing out in Long Beach, and that was ridiculous. I'd have to drive in and spend the the day at the god awful hotel right across from the garden. It was, uh, I wouldn't even take my clothes off. It was so dirty. And uh, I, I couldn't believe that, that we were like this, a professional 
NHL team, I wasn't used to that kind of treatment. And I, I did get it changed. I did. When Sonny Werblin took over as owner, the first thing I did was go to him and I said, listen, we, can't, we shouldn't be out in Long Island. That's the Islanders' place. we got to be somewhere in Manhattan or somewhere here. And he recommended that all the guys move into the city. Well, some of the guys couldn't. They had families and all this other stuff. Yeah. And we started practicing at Playland Rye. And guys moved in. And Ronnie Duguay came. Donnie Murdoch came. Donnie Maloney came. And... I don't know. Things just started to change. Just started to change. Now, um, I really enjoyed, like Fergie came as a general manager in 76, and I went with him to Winnipeg to talk Anders Hedberg and Ulf Nielsen in to come and play for the Rangers. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget that trip, too, because it was cold and snowy, and we weren't sure we were even going to make it back. And... Um, and Fergie got them and talked to them, talked to them about coming, and then it started to change. And I really give Ferguson a lot of credit for starting that change. And the first thing you know, you know, in 79, Freddie Shiro takes over, and he did everything in his power to get me out of there, but he couldn't do it because there was nobody going to take my salary. In fact, I was traded to Colorado. No, yeah, Colorado or Chicago for Jimmy Harrison. And Jimmy Harrison failed with physical. They pulled me off the bus in Colorado and Denver and told me, Mike Nicholas told me that I had been traded to the Blackhawks. And I was kind of happy. I could spend my last years playing with my brother in Chicago. I was pretty happy about it. And uh, just to get out of New York and away from Freddie. Because he used to do something to me that really pissed me off. He'd walk into practice in the mornings, and he'd walk by me, and he'd go, and I was sitting beside Barry Beck, and he'd say, if you keep playing, you're going to be too old for the old-timers. And walk away. Now, Freddie had a habit of drinking warm beer. So I used to find his beer and put it in the fridge. And he'd get pissed and come and say, who took who put my beer in the fridge? <laughs> and what, a couple of times I said, I did. Beer's got to be drinking cold. Because he couldn't do anything with me. Nobody would take my contract. I was like 30, what, 38, 37, 38. They weren't going to take my contract. I knew that. And so I just played along. If he was going to be that way. And then when Maloney got called up, and Murdoch came back from his suspension, he put me with those two kids. I, the very first game, I took him in the stick room. I said, listen, here's the way we're going to play it. Maloney, you're my cashman. Murdoch, you're my Haji, only you're not as strong, okay? And you're a better goal scorer. So this is what we're going to do. And we did in the second half. The first half, I scored three goals, playing with Nicky Fatio and Pierre Plant, and then playing maybe four minutes a game, five minutes. And when Maloney and, and Murdoch got called up, the second half, I scored 39. And we ended up, I ended up with 42 that year. And as you know, we went to the finals. And I won the scoring 
in the finals with Donnie Maloney. We lost to Montreal, but that was the way it is. Well, yeah, then you went back and you had another that. good year the next year. And um, what I like to do, Phil, is because, you know, I know you're, we're on the clock a little bit with you because I know you have to get to the rink at some point. Yeah. 72. 72 is, you know, the greatest hockey series in probably history of hockey and one of probably in sports at some point. Um, without it, we wouldn't be where we are today in a lot of the, the way the game has changed. But going back to that period, uh, you obviously had a big influence on what happened. Just walk us through a little bit how you found out about the series and about the reaction from the okay. players to play the series. I turned it down twice before I accepted. I turned it down. Uh, Eagleson called me the first time, and I said, no, I'm not going to give up my hockey school. No, we had to be there August August 14th, I think, which was my daughter's, oldest daughter's birthday. And I said, no, I'm not going to give up my hockey school. And my brother didn't want to go at all. So I turned it down. Two days later, I got a call from Harry Sinden. I turned it down again. And then Bobby Orr called me. And Bobby said, Phil, I can't play. We really need you and your brother. You've you got to play. Please. Now, Bobby was my friend, my teammate for years. And I says, okay, Bob. I said, okay, I'll do that. I'll give up my hockey. But I says, where's where's the money going? He says, we're going to go to the pension. As we know, it took <laughs> us 25 years to get it, for Christ's sakes. And um, I I says, okay. So I my brother was so mad at me. We gave everybody, all the kids back their money, and we closed the hockey school and went down to uh, Toronto and got a Sutton place. The hotel, is that still around in Toronto? Well, it's under a different name, I believe, now. Okay. There's something else. But that's now. where we stayed. Yeah. yeah. And we were told that these guys, it would be like a all-star game is played now. <laughs> It was just go out and have a good time and stuff. We didn't train. We didn't do any of that stuff. Well, you guys Nothing. stretched in the hallways before practice. I know. I remember Cashman and I, we <laughs> couldn't touch our toes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we um, and they said everybody was going to play. There were 35 guys. Okay, that's fine. Whatever. And I got to tell you, that first game, when they skated on the ice, the Russians with all new equipment, new skates, new gloves, everything. I couldn't believe it. That didn't look like the same guys we had seen practicing. And, uh, of course, as we all know, we got blown out that first game. And I got to tell you, after that game, I was walking to the press conference with Harry. And I said, Harry, these guys are too good. We're going to have to get a team. You have to pick 20 guys and make it a team. I don't care who you pick, but it has to be a team. You, we cannot beat these guys without being a team. And he said, Phil, we promised everybody was going to play. Well, you know, we decided that that's the way it was going to be then everybody's going to play. So he changed the lineup for the Toronto game. 
why he didn't play uh, Savard in Lapointe that first game in Montreal is beyond me. Never. So anyway, we, you know, we um, yeah. we win the second game because my brother was awesome. Uh, he only had eight shots the first period, but he four of them were breakaways. And um, we we played really hard. We went to Winnipeg, and we got in really bad penalty trouble, real bad. We couldn't get the penalties that we were taking. We couldn't understand what was going on, and we had some guys that just wanted to hurt people. And we did, and I admit it, and uh, tell you the truth, I would have killed those son of a bitches to win. And that's the way I believe. And when we went to um, Winnipeg and did that game, and then we went to Vancouver, and that was the, the end for me. I couldn't believe the booing. I, I just couldn't. And so I was lucky enough to be Phil, let me stop star. you right there. Phil, let me stop you right there before you go. Okay, so that Vancouver game, obviously everybody knows what happened after the game we lost. Every loss is a disaster, no matter what the score was. And you came on TV. Now, was this, this you're, I'm building this up here. Was this sort of um, anger building up in you over the couple games? And then did you just flow it off? Did it just come out? Or did, were you actually thinking of to say something? Just came out. Just came out. Uh, so all I know is that I saw the eyes of guys like Billy Goldsworthy and a bunch of other guys. I saw the, the, the hurt that they felt of being booed like that. Um, and my feeling was, look, I played in Boston. They're not going to do anything to me. What are you going to do to me? You know what I mean? I'll just say, fine. I'm going home. I'll go back. Boston, this is no contract. There was nothing. It's just a word. We weren't getting paid. So the hell with it, in my estimation. And um, when Johnny E saw that, it's all, and there were three kids, kids, they were in their 20s. In Vancouver, the old Zamboni entrance, we were at the goal at one end at the Zamboni entrance, and these three guys were yelling up there that communism was better, and they're better, and all this other stuff. Well, it just made my blood boil, just boil. And things came out. I've watched that. I never watched that interview. It took 10 years before I ever watched it. And I got to tell you, when I first saw it, I got a little embarrassed that I was so, I mean, I came so close to swearing a couple of times on national TV. And Johnny Esau was so smart just to let me go. And I, apparently the producer was telling him in his ear, wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up. But he didn't. And I'm glad he didn't. And when we went to Sweden is when we became a team. Well, let me stop you there. Let me stop you there. You went to Sweden. Now, I've got a story to fill in to take you to carry on. Uh, I spoke with Harry Sinden a couple of years ago, and we were talking about his career and stuff like that, and we got around to 72. So I asked him this question. I said, Harry, was there a moment in time that you thought that this team could actually win? And without hesitation, he said, absolutely, Mike. When we went to Europe, before we went to Moscow, we played a couple of games against Sweden. The day before we had it from Moscow, we had a practice. Now, I wanted to give these guys 
a practice they would remember for the rest of their lives. I sent the goalies off the ice because I didn't think the goalies were going to make the difference. And I skated these guys for an hour and a half. And he said to me, Mike, I ran out of drills. I ran out of skating drills. So there I am standing at center ice. I've skated these guys as hard as I could possibly could, but I wanted to do more. And I'm sitting there thinking of another drill. And Pete Mahalovich comes up and looks at me and says, Harry, is that all you got? And he said, I knew right, I knew I right then that. and there. He said, I knew right then and there we could win. Sorry. I remember that. And I remember after the practice, we went to um, the Grand Hotel in Stockholm. There was a park. And we got two cases of beer because Guy Lapointe's wife had given birth. And we sat there. The whole team was there. We sat there and we talked. And I don't know. We just became like a unit. You know what I mean? But Harry did what I thought he should have done earlier. Unfortunately, guys didn't get to play, unfortunately. But if we didn't do that, we would not have won. I believe that wholeheartedly. We would never have won unless we became a team. And I've always believed that. I've always believed that hockey is a team sport. Yes, you have the one or two players on your team that are really good and all that, but you can't win with just one or two players. You've got to have everybody going to win. And it was, without a doubt, for me, a revelation that team comes first. I believe that with the Bruins, too, by the way. I didn't believe it much with the Hawks. Let me ask you this. Uh, let me ask you this. Now, you got to remember, in 72, the political climate was much different than it is today. It was very still Russia. It was Russia, and it was the, the big, bad Russia. And it became a political statement as the series went along. you got 20 guys in your room. It was 35 at one time, as you said. But all stars in their own right in the National Hockey League, best players in the world. These guys have never, ever, including yourself, have faced anything adversity like this where you've been challenged as you have not only on the ice, but off the ice. So oh, you... Yeah. You as the you all of a sudden were the guy that sort of held the glue. You were the glue that sort of kept it together. And here you got all these guys. You could sense it watching on TV myself as a kid watching this. You became the leader. But you now, I'm asking you, did you sense that as it was going along, that these guys are now looking to you as the go-to guy as what do we do well, next, Phil? Let me put it this way. The very yeah. first meeting in Toronto, when we just got there, I stood up and I asked Eagleson, where's the money going? He says, you don't have to worry about that. I said, but I do. And I figured, <laughs> I figured this. I figured this. I had, we'd won the Stanley Cup. I was the first All-Star. I won the scoring championship. I was runner-up to Bobby, the MVP. What the hell are they going to do with me? Send me home? Somebody had to say something. Yeah, There were a lot of Eagleson clients there that weren't going to challenge them. I wasn't one of those guys. Al and I never got along. Even when I was president of the Players Association, we never got along. I, I never trusted them. And that was my... Russia, Phil. <laughs> What's that? You should have lost him in Russia. You I know, him in but Russia. he was part of the team. You know, he was part of the team. The fans were part of the team. We would go out of our way to help anyway, anybody. We were 
we were isolated. It's a lot like it is right now. We couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do anything. There was no well, restaurant. Phil, talk about some of the incidents. Talk about some of the incidents. There was some humorous incidents that went on, like they stole some of your food. Your, I think oh, yeah. the most upset you guys were, and they took your beer. Guys were getting followed. The brooms were bugged. Uh, people yeah. today have no idea what you guys were going. Explain some of the stuff that, you were, that was going on. Well, the rooms were bugged, and we found microphones in our rooms and stuff like that. And the biggest problem with us is they stole most of our beer. And they stole half our food. I don't know who took it. Maybe the Canadian Embassy took it. Who knows? But uh, it was it was not good. It wasn't healthy. I I just I I don't know. You know, my we had a meeting in Sweden. Eagleson came in and told us the Russians want to change a deal. No wives, girlfriends. Nobody was going to come over to Russia. And there were a lot of guys that said, that's fine. I don't want my wife there anyway. And I stood up and I said, listen, guys, the deal is a deal. Either they abide by it or else we tell them to F off and we'll go home. And we all agreed. Eagleson came in. We told him. And him and Harry and Fergie, they left. And the next thing I knew, the deal was the same. And we went to Russia and played. But we almost turned around and said, screw it, we're going home. We did. We had already played in Canada. So what? Screw the Russians. Well, here's, here's, a, here's a question for you, Phil. Go and take them one step further. I mean, we've got a few minutes left here, and we thank you again. Yeah, for I know. I've got to get going. Um, I've often thought, I think a lot of other people have, what happens if Henderson doesn't score that goal? Do we as Canadians take the same diplomatic approach towards the changes that would come in the game and been as gracious in defeat as we were in victory? Well, it's all I can tell you is I went back in 2012, um, 40th anniversary, and I couldn't believe the difference. Moscow was like New York on steroids. It was so wide open. And, um, and I couldn't believe the difference. I couldn't believe the people were so nice, so, so nice. And we never saw anybody in 72, obviously. And I, I don't know what would have happened had we lost that series. That's all I know is a, a very high-ranking guy in the Putin government at the time said to me, you guys, have you helped change the culture and everything else in this country. Do you know they play that eight game series every year, every year in Russia, they still do it. And you think you, do we ever see that in Canada and try to find out who hockey Canada was back then? Ha! That was a joke. Hockey Canada was Al Eagleson. <laughs> Well, here you go, Phil. In two years, I don't know, in 2022 will be the 50th anniversary right. of the series. So you know, Maybe sure the Canadian government will find it in their hearts to help us. Maybe. When I went to 40th anniversary, I was told you can't do anything. Only, we can only help on 25 and 50. And I said, 50? Half of us won't be around. Well... 
I'm sure you're going to be very busy for the next Lobot, but here's the thing I'll leave this question with you before we let you go is, would you have ever thought during that series, and you know the tensions that were rising and everybody was going to win at any cost that I know you've gone back and made friends with some of the players since then, but 50 years later, yep. you guys would be sitting down and having a beer and talking that over like old hockey guys and just speaking to the culture of hockey players and just seems to be kind of the mantra of a hockey player. Well, those guys are just hockey players, you know? They, That's my they point. had to do what they had to do. I got to be really good friends with Yakashev and Trachiak. And Boris Mohalov was a guy that, I'll tell you a funny story about him. This guy in game eight speared me right in the balls. I mean, he got mm-hmm. me good too. My voice went up a couple of octaves, there's no doubt. <laughs> and when I got off that plane 40 years later, he was there. I shook hands with Tretiak. I shook hands with Yakashev and Petrov. I wouldn't shake hands with him. And I looked at him and I said, I don't like you. We just got off the airplane. And he said in broken English, I don't like you. I said, well, let me tell you why I don't like you. I said, you speared me in the balls and I never got you back. And he threw the interpreter. He said, no, 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 you got me back. I had to go in after for operation with the spears behind my kneecaps. I says, I did that? He says, yeah. I said, okay, we're even. (laughs) And I shook hands with him. (laughs) I probably did. I don't remember. (laughs) Well, I'm sure you probably even got him. It's funny because I went to Russia to coach uh, an all-star team out of the GCHL in a uh, minor Bantam or Bantam tournament. It was a Tretiak. He hosts a Bantam tournament in Moscow every year. I was shocked when I got there, uh, which, I mean, we're talking eight years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And uh, I can only imagine what it was like when you guys were there, because when I was there, it was still way behind the times. And, oh, yeah. Uh, maybe it was 15 years ago. But well, I, I can only the imagine. Hotel we stayed at, the hotel we stayed at was called the Inn Tourist. And when I went back in 2012 and in 2013 and 14, it was Ritz Carlton, right across the street from the Red Square where we weren't allowed to walk certain places. Hell, I wasn't went in the Kremlin. I even shot a puck over the, the boards at Red Square at Lennon's tomb. <laughs> I did. <laughs> if they would have caught me, I think they would have killed me. <laughs> Well, Phil, we uh, we know you've got, you've got to run. You've got a game to get to, to tonight. So we just, uh, again, we want to thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real treat. And I'm sure we're going to be in hearing a lot of you over the next couple of years going back on the 50th anniversary, which is approaching, as we mentioned. Thank you so well, much. Well, I hope. Too. I hope that the Canadian government helps us. If they don't, it'll be the biggest disappointment because the Russian government really wants to do something. Well, I hope they do, and I hope they listen to this podcast and they uh, take your words. So we'll go from there. Rick, anything so. final thought for Phil? No, I just uh, it's a pleasure to have you on, Phil, and I uh, wish we had more time that I could. Yeah, so do I, Rick. But I want to ask you a question. One question, Rick. How did <laughs> you develop that shot? You had one of the best shots I've ever seen in the game. Well, thank you. My dad always made it. A rink in the backyard. Sometimes it was a tiny one where all I had room to do was shoot. And that's all I did. I 
I shot pucks. I mean, anytime I had the opportunity after school till it got dark, we had lights in some of the rinks, so I stayed up out in the dark. Good. And I practiced, and all they did was shot over and over and over again. Yeah, and you hit the net shoot. enough. And you hit the net enough, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, that helped with my accuracy and uh, my ability to score. There's no question, I think. And, uh, uh, but I also broke a few windows. And, uh, and my, <laughs> dad would all, my dad would always have to go next door and, and smooth things over. So. <laughs> well, it was okay, a pleasure Phil. being with you guys. And Ricky, okay. hope to see you soon. You take care, my friend, and good luck to everybody. Well, Squid, it's always a pleasure to speak to one of the legends of hockey, and they don't get any bigger than Phil. And I'll tell you, if, if we had time, he would still be here going on for another hour or two because he just loves to talk about hockey. Oh, he certainly does. And, uh, you know, not, not only was he a great player and a great goal scorer, but a, a good leader. And, uh, but boy, can he talk. <laughs> I gotta tell you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But it, it, for me, anyway, it's really good to hear those stories that, you know, that before I came into the league, that it was pretty similar to what it was when I came into the league and, and so on. And, and, you know, the changes that have gone on through the decades since. And uh, so that was kind of nice. I, I, I could, you know, kind of get what he was saying about everything and, what was going on between management and everything. Cause like I said, don't forget back then the owners controlled everything. And, and like I said, they had Al Eagleson in their back pocket. He made that very <laughs> clear too. So, uh, but anyway, it was Idiot. wonderful, wonderful to hear the, the story about team Canada and 72 and everything else. Well, you know, the funny part about it is, and it's not funny is that the question we asked them was about, what made the team special and we can use both teams team Canada and the Bruins. He didn't even hesitate camaraderie. Yeah. Yeah. Number one. Well, and I, I understand that because there's, you know, throughout my career, whether it be junior or, or professional, whatever, whatever, the best teams were always the guys that hung out together and always cared about each other. And, and that was, that was the, uh, the kind of ingredient for winning, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, is the best way to put it. Yeah, and he he just exemplified that, but, you know, but he gave us a little bit behind scenes because I think he's a little bit being a little bit modest because if you think about it, the guys like even Sabard and, you know, all these guys like Mahovlich and all of them, Dryden, his brother, none of them had been any sort of adversity going into Team Canada where you've got the whole country on your back to win. And then you're playing against these guys who are exceptionally good all of a sudden, like, mm-hmm. you know, and they're prepared to beat the Canadians. Like they'd been training for months and months and months at a high, high level. And you heard Phil and you know, their guys were drinking beer, showed up and they do some stretching in the hallway and go out and play a couple of scrimmages and play. And they're, and all 35 guys are going to play. So again, it shows you the moxie and that sort of that intangible that you can't take away from that Canadian hockey player to win at all costs. And that is something that you just can't take that out of the DNA of any Canadian hockey player. And I don't care to what, and you know, that series is the greatest series probably we're ever going to see in hockey. 
that goal Henderson scored is the greatest goal in hockey history. I don't even know why there's even a debate about it with the U.S. goal or the Crosby goal. And because those goals don't mean what they mean to people today if the Henderson goal doesn't go in the net in 72. So yeah. it, 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 it started it all. It changed the game forever. And you heard him, Phil, say even the Russians, both sides benefited from that series, the Russians and the Canadians and anybody watching around the world. So that helped hockey universally. Yeah, I, I'd have to agree with you on that, Mike. I think it helped uh, all around the world, really. I mean, uh, made hockey probably a little bit more popular in Europe. Uh, certainly, it, it got the Canadian people glued to their televisions to watch it. I mean, they, bring, they brought TVs into their classrooms and everything so we could watch a hockey game exactly. in, it, while we're in school. I mean, you, you can't get any better than that. And uh, the victory, I think, you know, kind of brought all Canadians together as one as well. My dad worked at IBN with, and I, I came home from school to go and come to watch the game because it was later that day for some reason we got sent home. My dad was got sent home from work to watch the game. Like, <laughs> well, there was nothing, well, there's nothing ever like this in Canada before. No. So you can imagine what was going through. And Phil, he just had that attitude that screw it, you know, and he well, just they, went for it. And, yeah, I mean, the Canadians, you think about it, I mean, that, that will stand still in time forever. That it was the first time that a communist country, the Russians and the Canadians faced off in, a, in an actual series uh, of any sorts whatsoever. And, uh, you know, I mean, with best, best against best, that is. And it was a heck of a series and very, very close. And it it kind of set everything up for the future of hockey between Russia, U.S., Canada, and, and everybody else. Yep. There's, no, there's no question in my mind that, that that series set up the evolution of hockey in the world and how everybody thought about the Russians, the Canadians, the U.S., and, and so, so on and so forth. Yeah, and they weren't the amateurs we all made them out to be, as we found out when you started seeing how the Red Army was the yeah. stacked team and seemed to have the whole national team on it, where they got all the plum jobs in the military and they had apartments and they lived at one couple levels above everybody else and why this yeah. team would be, you know, 40 wins and one loss or something like that. And it was not a club team. That was a professional team, very much well, like our guys. But regardless. Technically, it was a club team, but... The Red Army controlled the league, basically, and exactly. they put all the best players had to play there. And I, I'm pretty sure they probably never did anything uh, military-wise. They just they were the best hockey players. So you're coming here, and uh, you don't really have to do anything except play hockey. And uh, you know, so uh, that's the way it was back then. And all things have changed, uh, fortunately, for the better, I think, over there. And now they got a, their own professional league, which is, you know, very, very successful. And uh, like I said, that series changed Everything. hockey around the world. Well, I know when I played in Sweden, on a smaller note, um, the guys on our team that were in the military, these guys, they would get their regular pay. They could come, they'd never miss a game, never miss a practice. They would get time off to train and to play for mm -hmm. club teams they were playing for. And this was all through Sweden. And this yeah. went on probably in, went on in Finland and all those 
uh, Scandinavian countries. So the Russians weren't the only ones doing it. They all were. And as we found out, the game of hockey as we have today, best game in the world, bar none, and hockey players the best in the world, bar none. And that brings us to the close of another show. We Next week, we'll have another surprise guest for you. We're just still working on it. We've got lots of guys we're going to have for you in the up in coming weeks. Uh, you can look for us, Squid and the Ultimate Late Fan. We'll be on our usual site. Look up Rick at Rick5 on Instagram, Twitter. Uh, same with me, Mike at Ultimate Least Fan. Ultimate Least Fan, we're out there on our social media, so watch for us. We'll be talking about our next guest in the next few days. And everybody, look for this show. It's uh, Saturday. Look for our next show drops a week, Saturday at noon. We'll talk to you guys again in a week. <laughs>